Nuclear EMPs. A single nuclear explosion in space would create an electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, that would instantly knock out the electrical grid, and with it, well, just about everything that we consider to be indicative of civilization in the 21st century. The dangers of EMPs have long been dismissed from public discourse as being some kind of right-wing neocon conspiracy fear-mongering, and their connection to nuclear issues has been obscured. But when you hear from a highly respected and credentialed professor who has regularly presented to the United Nations and has spent four full years researching nuclear EMPs for a new book, and he tells you... All the solid-state electronics would be fried, and our critical national infrastructure relies on modern electronic devices to operate, so all the critical infrastructure in this affected area would cease to function and that would include ground, sea, rail, and air transportation systems, fuel and food distribution systems, water and sanitation systems, telecommunication systems, financial systems, emergency services. I bet anything you can think of would just be knocked out almost instantly. Hello, wake-up call. Well, when Stephen Starr, who has been a board member and senior scientist with Physicians for Social Responsibility, is an associate of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and so much more, explains the reality of what we would all face from a single nuclear explosion in space from as far away as 100 miles above Earth, you gain an expanded, truly terrifying vision of what else could happen from that terrible, dangerous, awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a powerful interview with Professor Stephen Starr, the result of his four years of research in writing a book about nuclear electromagnetic pulses, or EMPs, which would result from even a single nuclear detonation in space. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than will ever surface from that missing Titanic submersible. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 20th, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off here in the U.S. with Texas, which could be close to a power emergency. Parts of Texas and southern Louisiana are experiencing a dangerous heat wave that's set to last more than a week. 
blistering heat, and stifling humidity have already combined to push the heat index above 120 degrees in spots, posing a significant danger to vulnerable populations and those without adequate access to cooler environments. And in the middle of all of this, on June 16, one of the four nuclear reactors in Texas stopped producing power. The incident took place at Comanche Peak Unit 1, 40 miles southwest of Fort Worth in Texas. It took place on Friday and was caused by a feedwater pump trip, causing the nuclear reactor to shut down at the height of the heat wave. It was only at 3% on Sunday morning and at 78% power on Monday the last day for which we currently have statistics. Roughly a third of enriched uranium used in the United States in nuclear reactors is now imported from Russia. And why? Because it's the world's cheapest producer. Nearly a dozen countries around the world depend on Russia for more than half their enriched uranium. Here in the U.S., that reliance leaves the country vulnerable to a Russian shutdown of enriched uranium sales, which they might do as a geopolitical tool. So what are we doing about it? Well, we could just cut to the chase, shut down all nuclear reactors and transition to solar, wind, geothermal, hydroelectric, and other genuinely sustainable means of generating electricity. But no. What is the latest plan? The American centrifuge plant in Piketon, Ohio, is planning to generate enriched uranium for the current fleet of nuclear reactors and also planning to produce another, more concentrated form of enriched uranium crucial to the development of what are being termed small modular nuclear reactors. While these reactors have received billions, that's with a B, of dollars in federal development funds, in the U.S., next-generation reactors remain only in the design stage. None have been built. But still, there are plans to ramp up uranium enrichment and fuel production in Piketon, Ohio, with no mention in the articles that I have read of the failures of the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant in that area. No mention of the contamination from the demolition of that site, a gaseous diffusion plant, that had radioactive particles found in the air ducts of the Zahn's Corner Middle School in Pike County, which forced the closure and abandonment of that entire school nor anything about the battles that contaminated residents have been fighting for years, including Vina Colley, who has been a regular interviewee and news source for this program. And all this because Russia's enriched uranium is so cheap. Well, sometimes cheap is expensive. Too expensive. Shutting down the reactors and putting solar panels on the rooftop of absolutely every building that we've got just might do away with our need for any of that. In Georgia, more problems with Plant Vogel's new nuclear unit. It's nuclear deja vu, as the completion of Unit 3 at Vogel has been delayed yet again. The latest setback is due to a degraded hydrogen seal, whatever that is, on the generator side of the unit. Fixing the issue will push Unit 3's expected in-service date back to July. Georgia Power's most recent estimate was for the unit to enter service this month, June. 
Kel Surprise. Plant Vogel is $20 billion over budget, years late, and has been plagued with repeated technical problems. Oliver Stone, the propagandist filmmaker behind the documentary, put that in quotes because it's a piece of fiction, Nuclear Now, has made further incriminating remarks in favor of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Stone previously made a 2017 documentary entitled The Putin Interviews, which had him labeled a Putin apologist, providing an unmediated platform. Stone, who's been known to hang out with the Russian leader, stated that he was, quote, a very refined individual who speaks quietly, reasonably. Tell that to President Zelensky in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Stone, in discussing nuclear now, joked about dramatizing it to boost the appeal. Quote, It was my idea to make it about a female scientist, because they're popular these days. A female scientist with a male flunky or something. And in order to save nuclear energy, she has to basically perform the same tricks as Tom Cruise. This story is obviously a candidate for numbnuts of the week, but we've got a better one because... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, numbnuts of the week. The Nobel Peace Prize winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons has issued a new report. And considering that their research is impeccable, vetted, and footnoted, it's accurate. This report shows that the world's nine nuclear-armed countries spent a total of 82.9 billion U.S. dollars on their arsenals just last year, 2022. The U.S. was by far the biggest spender, dumping 43.7 billion into its already massive arsenal in just that one year, more than all of the other nuclear-armed countries combined. The total for all the countries broke down to 157,000 U.S. dollars per minute spent on their atomic weaponry, which, of course, just went to enriching private contractors at the risk of imperiling mankind. That means the U.S. spent more than $78,000 per minute on nukes, but they spread the money around. The U.S. Congress allocated $16 billion for the National Nuclear Security Administration to spend on, quote, weapons activities, with no explanation of exactly what they meant. The Department of Defense requested $27.7 billion with a B dollars for nuclear modernization, including the ground-based mid-course defense, B-21 bomber, Columbia-class submarine, and Nuclear Command, Control, and Communications. This marks the third year in a row where global spending on nuclear weapons increased to even more insane levels. Just think what that money could do for health care, necessary domestic infrastructure, education, conversion to solar, all the things we genuinely need in this country. But instead, The money gets squandered on nuclear contractors and death weaponry. And remember, this is just the spending for one year. It goes on year after year. And that's why 
members of U.S. Congress who voted for this appropriation, members of the government who set this as an agenda, and all those money-grubbing nuclear perpetrators who stand to make so much money off of the destruction of people and the planet, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In Japan, that country's unilateral decision to discharge nuclear-contaminated wastewater, 1.3 million tons of tritium-contaminated water, into the Pacific Ocean disregards international law and public opinion, according to analysts who gathered last Sunday, June 18, one day before Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, starts trial operations of equipment for dumping nuclear-contaminated wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Some analysts believe that resisting goods with potential nuclear radiation contamination risks can be extended to other regions apart from Fukushima in Japan and products beyond seafood. Hong Kong has already announced that imports of seafood from Fukushima and nearby high-risk areas will be banned in Hong Kong at once if Japan starts to dump nuclear-contaminated water into the Pacific. Seafood from outside high-risk areas in Japan would also need to provide radiation test reports before it could be sold in Hong Kong. South Korea also announced it would maintain a ban on imports of seafood from Japan's Fukushima prefecture. But a creative new boycott has been taking shape in China, and it provides a role model the rest of the world could follow. That's because Chinese netizens have started boycotting Japanese beauty products over radioactive water concerns. They are questioning the safety of products made in Japan, with many not only refusing to buy the products, but returning Japanese beauty products they already purchased, stating they will no longer buy J-based beauty products starting from now. Among the Japanese-based brands targeted are Shiseida, Ipsa, and Albion. Beauty product aficionados have a habit of checking the ingredients of all their products, and netizens have even identified the companies that have production facilities based in Japan to include them in the boycott. So if any of you listening know or are an influencer on TikTok, please go get them. As for the tritium-contaminated water that Japan is threatening to release into the Pacific Ocean 1.3 million tons of the stuff. It has all been treated by what is called the Advanced Liquid Processing System, or ALPS, which removes some of the radioactive substances but leaves behind radioactive tritium. As we learned last Friday, June 16, there have been eight confirmed cases of malfunction with the ALPS system since 2013. Major malfunctions with ALPS concerned corrosion of facilities and issues with filters. Yet Japan is still forging forward with their plans, and nothing seems to be able to derail them. Protesters have gathered in front of the headquarters of Tokyo Electric Power Company, protesting against the plans to discharge the nuclear wastewater, saying the Japanese government should spend more time considering alternative plans because the current plan could risk irreversible damage to the marine ecosystem off Japan's coast and to human health, as well as spreading to the rest of the Pacific Ocean and the other oceans beyond. As one stated, TEPCO has never done a full investigation into how much the nuclear wastewater will harm the human body. We dare not eat fish in the future. The ocean does not belong to Japan alone. 
consumer concerns have driven the wholesale price of seafood landed in Fukushima down. And even though it is now selling at a discount of up to 20% compared to fish sourced elsewhere, consumers are not buying it. Yeah, think? In Canada, Algonquin First Nations opposed the giant radioactive waste mound beside the Ottawa River on their unceded territory. Chiefs of the two Algonquin First Nations and the Grand Chiefs of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg National Tribal Council and the Algonquin National Secretariat, representing 10 of the 11 Algonquin First Nations, called on the Canadian federal government to abandon current plans for a massive above-ground radioactive waste dump on unceded Algonquin territory near the Ottawa River, or Kichisiba. Chief Lance Haymond of Kibawek First Nation said, The Kichisiba is sacred to our peoples and at the heart of our unceded homeland. The Algonquin peoples never consented to the Chalk River site being used for over 75 years for nuclear reactors and research and now being the site for a permanent radioactive waste dump. Consultation was far too late and inadequate and we reject the plan. The chiefs pointed to Article 29.2 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, to which Canada is a signatory. It says there must be free, prior, and informed consent by First Nations to storage or disposal of radioactive waste on their lands or territories. And Grand Chief Savannah McGregor of the Algonquin Anishinaabek National Tribal Council, representing seven Algonquin First Nations, said... The radioactive waste dump plan follows a long history of assimilation and oppression since the European arrival. And Grand Chief Lisa Robinson of the Algonquin National Secretariat said, As leaders and as people here today, it is our responsibility to preserve and protect Mother Earth for future generations. We cannot risk the destruction of land and water, which sustains life for all beings. The fires in northern Canada and especially in Saskatchewan, are posing a radiation threat. One fire is raging close to the large Key Lake uranium mine complex, a distance of 60 kilometers, 37 miles, from the homes of nuclear hot seat correspondents Marius and Candace Paul. Another 80 kilometers or 50 miles north past the Key Lake complex is another large uranium mine complex. The radioactive contamination is believed to be being spread in the smoke from the fires, as both of these mines have been operating in that area for decades. In Belarus, President Alexander Lukashenko declared on Tuesday, June 13, that his country had already received some of Russia's tactical nuclear weapons and warned that he wouldn't hesitate to order their use if Belarus faced, quote, an act of aggression. He added that the Russian nuclear weapons to be deployed to Belarus are three times more powerful than the U.S. atom bombs that were dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. And the day after North Korea sent two ballistic missiles into Japan's exclusive economic zone in waters off Ishikawa Prefecture, a U.S. nuclear-powered guided missile submarine arrived in South Korea on Friday, June 16. The USS Michigan submarine can conduct strike missions using Tomahawk cruise missiles, fulfilling a pledge by the U.S. to enhance the, quote, regular visibility of strategic assets, some of the United States' most powerful weapons on the Korean Peninsula. Can you hear those sabers rattling? 
Boys, boys, where is that saltpeter when we need it? We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, someone recently asked me, how could you ever keep producing a nuclear hot seat episode every week for 12 full years? I usually just shrug and offer a glib, because I'm crazy. But I am officially retiring that answer. So why do I do this show? Because I hate perpetrators. I hate sexual perpetrators, physical abusers, bullies, those who do damage to others and not even consider the consequences. Nuclear perpetrators are perhaps the worst in that what they do will last forever, possibly outlast life on Earth, maybe help bring about its end. It's doubtful that one little podcast can bring the multi-trillion dollar nuclear industry and its mindless destruction of people and the planet and the future to an end. But if I have a voice to raise against it, how dare I not even try? And give a voice to others on the show as well. You never know what might make an ultimate difference. That's what keeps me going. That's what I'm dedicated to. And that's why Nuclear Hot Seat continues every week. So to celebrate the start of our 13th year, I invite you to support the show by donating to help cover our monthly running costs. How about $13 in honor of 13 years? Or $5, the same as a cup of coffee. You could make it a monthly recurring donation and buy us a cup of coffee a month. It's easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. If you have Zelle, You can send money directly to us through our email, info at nuclearhotseat.com. Either way, we're a 501c3, so the donation is tax-deductible. Please, donate now, and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. Professor Stephen Starr directed the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the University of Missouri in Columbia for 11 years until his retirement in 2021. He is an associate of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and has been a board member and senior scientist with Physicians for Social Responsibility. Professor Starr also teaches a class for the Missouri University Peace Studies Program entitled Nuclear Weapons, Environmental Health, and social effects. Starr began making presentations at side panels at the United Nations in 2007, sometimes working as an expert witness for Switzerland, New Zealand, and Chile at the UN offices in New York and Geneva. In 2010, Professor Starr addressed the United Nations First Committee, discussing the environmental consequences of nuclear war, including nuclear winter and nuclear famine. I spoke with Stephen Starr about nuclear electromagnetic pulses on June 19, 2023. Stephen Starr, thanks so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thanks for having me, Libby. First of all, let's get clear. What is a high-altitude electromagnetic pulse? It's created by a high-altitude detonation of a nuclear weapon beginning at about 19 miles up above the earth and up to hundreds of miles above that. There's no blast or thermal fire effects that are produced, but it creates a gigantic electromagnetic field or a pulse that will cover the entire continental of the United States 
And this would bring down most or all of the U.S. national electric grid. And that would go for any national electric grid that hasn't been shielded from electromagnetic pulse. With this high-level electromagnetic pulse, which is sometimes referred to as a hemp or an amp, EMP, how long would it take for it to have an effect on the grid? And how high would the pulse itself actually be compared to normal usage or normal load on the electrical systems? Well, it happens at the speed of light. And so in a few billionths of a second, these giant electromagnetic fields will strike the earth and they will induce these massive voltages and currents into any electrically conductive material. In particular, the power lines and telecom lines can have up to 2 million volts for a medium distribution power line, which will create five to 10,000 amps in that line. And so anything that's plugged into the grid at that point, it's gonna get this massive surge of electricity and most modern electronic devices only operate at a few volts if they're solid state electronics. So it's if they're not shielded from this, they're gonna get cooked. What would the impact be in terms of the way we are used to conducting life? right now in this portion of the 21st century? Well, everything depends on electricity in modern society. So if the grid is knocked out and see the grid will remain out for months or longer because of some of the components that are gonna be destroyed in it, but that can explain that a little later. In the areas that are within say 70 to 100,000 square miles beneath the detonation, all the solid state electronics would be fried. And our critical national infrastructure relies on modern electronic devices to operate. So all the critical infrastructure in this affected area would cease to function. And that would include ground, sea, rail, and air transportation systems, fuel and food distribution systems, water and sanitation systems, telecommunication systems, financial systems, emergency services. I bet anything you can think of would just be knocked out almost instantly. So... We would basically be stuck in place with no services coming to us and our resources being depleted, which sounds to me like the total breakdown of Western civilization or what passes for it. Well, if this happened, suddenly you would have no running water. You would have no heating or cooling. You would not be able to get gas for your car because you wouldn't be able to deliver fuel. All the transportation systems would be knocked out. It would be like suddenly being transported back into the 18th century, only we really don't know how to survive in that environment. All of the food in the grocery stores realize anything that's refrigerated would be ruined in a couple of days. And it, the stores usually only have three days worth of food in them. So in that period, after that, there wouldn't be any food to get. I mean, it, it would be an, an utter nightmare. It'd be a catastrophic event. I hate it when the preppers are proved right. <laughs> Now, you have explained at great length, including in a book elsewhere, about the different kinds of pulses that would come in an EMP event. And we don't need to know the differences at this time. Somebody wants to do a deep dive. The information is out there. But what would be the more precise destruction caused by any event to our electrical grid? Well, there's an instant pulse of the E1 wave, and that destroys, that induces these massive currents that fries the electronic systems. And then 
a matter of some seconds later, there was the final E3 wave. That induces currents into the power lines that will destroy the large power transformers and the high-speed circuit breakers. And, you know, we rely on those to uh, about 60 to 70%, even up to 90% of all the electricity in the United States has to be routed through these large power transformers. But when it leaves the power plant, it has to be stepped up and go through these transmission lines. And then it has to be stepped down for end users. And if you lose these transformers, you can't transmit electric power over long distances. So about 82% of those right now are manufactured overseas. And the wait time for that is somewhere between 24 months or longer, maybe up to 32. And we have some domestic production of that. But if the grid is knocked out, you know, we won't be making many things here. The large power transformers weigh 200,000 to 800,000 pounds each. There's really only about 2,000 of them in the total entire U.S. grid. We don't stockpile those. They have to be custom designed and manufactured. It takes very specialized equipment and highly trained personnel to make them. You can't ship them by air, so they have to be shipped from probably Japan or someplace like overseas. And then when they get here, they anything over 100 tons is too heavy to carry on a train, so you'd have to put it on a, a caterpillar and you have to take down power lines uh, just to move it. So this is a huge process. But the main point is that if you, we lose all these and we don't have a ability to replace them quickly, then the grid will just remain down for a number of months at least, if not a year longer. And of course, this replacement process, under best possible circumstances, is predicated on the grid being up, society functioning, us having the people in place and the skills in place, and them being able to proceed. But in the chaos that would follow an EMP, it doesn't sound like we would have any kind of an infrastructure that would support the replacement of the other key pieces of the infrastructure. Right. I also mentioned the extra high voltage circuit breakers. Those work in conjunction with the power transformers. The lead time for those is about a year now, too, and they would be destroyed. Uh, another thing that I learned is that there's a lot of insulators on regular power distribution lines that would be their glass insulators. They would short out from all these high voltages and they, they would be destroyed, too. So you'd actually have to replace millions of those. You lose one insulator in a line and the whole line goes down. And when you think about it, so we don't have any electricity. But we also have all these solid state electronics that are going to be destroyed. We won't be able to really test to replace those until we get the electricity back. So it would just create this monumental problem. And the thing is, we can protect against this. You know, I, I write about nuclear war. I've done it for years. And most nuclear war issues, there's not many things you can do except not fight a nuclear war. But with this, you can actually put shielding to protect the large power transformers and other critical national infrastructure, including nuclear power plants, that would protect the grid and it would definitely diminish the impact on the infrastructure. After the grid comes down, what would happen at nuclear power plants? Well, before I explain what would happen, I, I want to say that I don't endorse nuclear power. I don't think any industry should be allowed to produce highly toxic products that are lethal at the molecular or atomic level and have to be kept out of the biosphere for 100,000 years or so. I'm talking about how to protect these plants because I'd rather see them shut down than have them all melt down at the same time. And they will melt down if they're not protected. What would happen is the sequence of events would be first the grid is knocked out. Well, once you lose offsite power at a nuclear power plant, that causes an emergency shutdown of the reactor that doesn't require electricity to happen. 
So the control rods go into the core, the fission process stops in the reactor core, but there's still a huge amount of heat that will still remain there, like six to 7% of the heat in a commercial reactor, which amounts to hundreds of megawatts of heat will still be in there, which is why these systems are designed to instantly, within three to 10 seconds, they have to flood the reactor core with cooling water. The emergency core cooling systems are designed to do that. But these systems operate, they require motor-driven pumps, motor-actuated valves, and they also have pressure and temperature sensors. They all have a lot of solid-state electronics built into them, and they have control units in the reactor control room that are all computerized, and they're monitoring all this. And all these things are highly susceptible to high voltages. And so if the plant gets hit with this, it'll knock all those things out, and it also will knock out the solid-state electronics and the emergency diesel generators and the AC-DC interface in the battery banks. And the plants have to have emergency power systems to run just about everything. They run all these pumps, even their communication systems, the lights. You know, the operators and the control room might be in the dark with no way to call out of the control room. And they would have at most maybe an hour before the reactor core is gonna start to self-destruct because like I said, there's huge amounts of heat in the core. And if it doesn't get cooling water going through it quickly to remove it, that water will heat up to the point where it becomes super pressurized steam. And then the heat will actually cause that water and steam to break the hydrogen and oxygen bonds apart. So you have a huge amount of hydrogen gas that's produced. And that's what caused the explosion at the Fukushima plants in the uh, reactor buildings. So you can have an explosion. Then the fuel rods will continue to heat until they melt and they melt down to the bottom of the steel reactor pressure vessel. And then they melt through it into the secondary containment. And like at Fukushima, it'll break through the concrete because you're talking like many thousands of degrees Fahrenheit. If you put that on top of concrete, it just fractures it. And then you wind up with the stuff uh, they call it the China syndrome. You've heard that before, I'm sure. It winds up somewhere below the plant. And it's so radioactive that like at Fukushima, they couldn't even put a camera down there to figure out where it was because the gamma rays just destroy all the electronics. It's not a very good situation. Is it possible that there could be an explosion if the cooling water is not available, the systems are not there to support it, or is it just a matter of the heat melting everything and creating a huge amount of radioactivity that it releases? Well, the explosion would probably come as it was at Fukushima from the production of hydrogen gas that's, that's produced as the core heats to the point where it disassociates the hydrogen and oxygen atoms and you just have a buildup of hydrogen gas. Uh, you're not going to have like a nuclear detonation if that's what you are talking about, because the fuel in a nuclear power plant is called low enriched uranium, and it's not capable of producing a nuclear explosion. But you can have, you can reach criticality, which is that can happen in a spent fuel pool, where if it's too close together and it's, it loses the cooling water, you can start generating huge amounts of radiation and gamma rays and stuff. So that's something you don't want to have happen either. What would all of that heat do to the spent fuel pools, or would they be generating their own heat at the same time? Well, spent fuel pools are kept next to the reactor core. When fuel is removed from the reactor core every 18 months or so, they have to take out the fuel rods that are used because they become so highly radioactive that they, it interferes with the fission process. But the rods have to be kept underwater the whole time. So they're removed underwater, they're transferred robotically into this tennis court sized pool that's stainless steel lined. It's about 40 foot deep with water and the rods sit there, but the rods 
the more radioactive something is, the more heat it generates. And these are highly radioactive. So these spent fuel pools have to have their own cooling system uh, that has to operate 24 seven. And if you have a loss of offsite power and your own power systems, your emergency power systems are destroyed, then you won't be able to cool these pools. In Fukushima, what they did was they brought fire trucks in and they started trying to shoot water up into the pools because the water will heat to the point of boiling and it will boil off. And as it boils, the water level goes down. And if the spent fuel rods are exposed to steam or air, they generate enough heat. The ones that are recently moved from the reactor core will ignite. The zirconium cladding on the fuel rods will actually cause a fire. And this fire can spread to the other rods that are you know, older rods. And you can have a spent fuel pool fire that creates enough radiation to make an entire state uninhabitable. People don't realize how toxic this stuff is. Cesium-137 makes up 40% of the radiation that's coming out of a spent fuel pool. And most pools have something like 900 or 1,000 pounds of that inside the fuel rods. Well, when I gave a talk about Fukushima at the New York Academy of Medicine, I think that's when I first met you, <laughs> I learned from the map of Chernobyl that there was a contamination map that shows how much cesium-137 is in the key. And if you have less than one gram of cesium-137 can make a square kilometer into a radioactive exclusion zone, which that translates into 1.2 grams per square mile. American dime weighs 2.7 grams. So if you made, you took a dime and vaporized it and spread that gas over a square mile, you couldn't live there for a century or longer. And that's a couple grams. We're talking, you know, close to half a ton of this stuff in every spent fuel pool. So it's a big problem if it all starts boiling over and burning up. In terms of how widespread the damage would be to nuclear reactors from an EMP or HEMP, how many nuclear reactors could be affected if a single nuclear bomb were exploded in the 19 to 100 mile or more range over, say, the United States or another nuclear intense country? One detonation over the Northeast or Southeast United States or North Central could cause dozens of nuclear power plants to melt down simultaneously. And that's a conservative estimate because, you know, my book uses a normal EMP from unclassified documents, but the Russian and Chinese military texts talk about super EMP weapons that can create two to four times higher levels of EMP than what I talk about. You know, I'm, I am talking about a conservative estimate here. And so a country like France, you know, any country that has their reactors that aren't shielded from EMP, aren't protected, they're very much at risk. France has over 50 nuclear power plants. I think about 56 reactors could melt down from one EMP in France. That got the interest of my publisher who lives in Germany. So that <laughs> helped me get the book published. <laughs> yeah, there goes the EU in one blast. You have several times now referred to shielding or right. the possibility of shielding these nuclear facilities. What, if anything, can be done to shield nuclear reactors and fuel pools from an EMP? Well, there's a lot of expertise out there. There's shielding done for lots of different things already for electromagnetic issues, like the microwave, for example. So they know how to do it. There's a company called the Meditech Corporation that specializes in this, and they've worked in Switzerland and Sweden. I won't get into the details of how to do it, but there's technology that can be applied that will, I would say, at least greatly reduce the impact. For the spent fuel pools, I think one of the things they ought to do is get the fuel out of the pools and put it into a dry cast storage and a hardened 
casts, like in really thick canisters, 12 inch thick casts, like they use in Germany, put them in a hardened facilities underground. There's a lot of things that can be done to minimize the possibility of big catastrophic releases of radiation. So it is possible to shield them. Has the shielding been implemented at any nuclear reactors in the United States? And if not, why not? Well, as far as I know, unless it's remained classified, there hasn't been any protection. It's a non-designed basis event, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission maintains that the plants are in no danger, so it hasn't been done. I just think this is astounding. And the cost to do this would be maybe a fraction, at the most, a quarter of what we sent to Ukraine already. But we can protect the national electric grid. We can protect the power plants, our critical national infrastructure. There's plans that have been done for this. And there's twice they've introduced acts into Congress in 2013 and 2015 that spelled out how to do this. And each time the legislation was blocked by the nuclear and the electric utilities because they don't want to spend the money on it. I'm stunned to silence because that's so short-sighted and mean-spirited and just wrong when there is protection for something that is a viable threat and it's not being implemented. Yeah, I don't understand a lot of things in this world these days. I think there's a lot of magical thinking, but it's driven by the reluctance to spend money to address a problem. One more thing about the grid, you know, there's another thing called a geomagnetic disturbance. It's called a coronal mass ejection. A solar flare will shoot out every once in a while, every several centuries, it will shoot out this huge cloud of plasma that will, if it strikes the earth directly, it'll just destroy the grid. It'll, when The last time this happened was in 1859. All we had back then were telegraph lines. If you look it up on the internet, it's called the Carrington event, named after the astronomer that saw the flare coming out. It caught the lines on fire. It gave really horrendous shocks to the operators on the telegraphs. It caught some of the offices on fire. And our electronics now are a million times more sensitive than even what they were back in the 1960s. So if we put this protection into the large power transformers, we also will protect against a geomagnetic disturbance. And so there's another really good reason to do this. It's just a matter of time before that happens. So to recap, Either a solar flare or, as we've talked about for most of this interview, a single high-altitude explosion of a nuclear weapon from as far as 19 to 100 miles above the Earth would create a high-altitude electromagnetic pulse. We've been referring to it as an EMP that could destroy almost the entire electric grid simultaneously, basically wiping out all essential services with no timely way, perhaps not any way, to replace the necessary infrastructure. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think that's essentially accurate. You can get into some of the details. You can detonate a bomb over the Yucatan Peninsula that would knock the grid out and fry the large power transformers. The E1 component is uh, more centralized underneath the detonation point, so it's more localized, but it still would be a regional effect. So you could knock out the grid at, say, the whole eastern United States or the west coast with one of those so if you have a couple of detonations, you definitely would, you could try all the electronics and knock the grid out. Well, let's say there's 11 to 12,000 nuclear weapons right now that are in the arsenals of the nuclear weapon states. And I think it's pretty wishful thinking to think one of those is never going to be used for some kind of purpose like this. It can be delivered even with a high altitude weather balloon or a Scud missile launched off the coast. And I want to say that, you know, this whole issue has been previously identified with neocons and it's, and it's been denigrated. 
I think that's unfortunate because it's politicized. You know, there's there's the good science that shows this is true. And to dismiss it because, oh, that's kind of far right, you know, fantasy thinking. That's not true. There's been congressional studies on this a number of times, like for years. And in fact, they I think they classified the information about the nuclear power plants until the Air Force brought it out. Because <laughs> I've been watching this for a while thinking, why, why don't they have nuclear power plants in these descriptions? So we're very much at risk from this. Like I said, you know, it's one of the few things that you can protect from a nuclear detonation. You can actually protect your infrastructure if you just take the time and effort to install these technological protections. It's worth it. It's worth it. And woe unto us if that is not done. For those who perhaps have not heard enough to fry their electrical circuits, meaning their brain circuits, you do have a book coming out very shortly. What is the name and how can we find it? The title of the book is High Altitude Electromagnetic Pulse, A Mortal Threat to the U.S. National Power Grid and U.S. Nuclear Power Plants. What you need to do is go to my website, which is nuclearfamine.org, all one word, nuclear famine, and you can find a summary, uh, basically, of the book there, and I'll be able to post links to where the book can be purchased. I think it's going to be about, well, two months before it's out. That's exciting. and. I would urge people who want to know more about this extremely crucial issue to certainly read the material that's already up on the website. And then after that, purchase the book, read it, and then let's put some pressure on Congress to do something about it. Because there are so few areas in nuclear where we can actually do something tangible now. And this is a major piece that can be put in place. I want to say one thing about the book. I have over 150 references and 350 footnotes. I have appendices that have the schematics for the emergency diesel generators and active emergency core cooling systems. I fully expect the nuclear industry to say, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So I made a real point of documenting every single thing that I have in there. And I had to go and study the technical manuals that are for the nuclear power plants because I couldn't get any nuclear engineers to talk to me about this. I wrote like maybe eight or nine universities, 11 people running programs there, even a consulting firm. And they all went, oh, well, we don't have time for this. Or they just didn't reply because it's not politically acceptable. You know, it's a it's a topic that they can get in trouble by talking about. As an end result, that's why it took me almost four years to get this done, because I spent a lot of time to make sure I knew what I was talking about. The only thing you can really prove me wrong now is by testing. And that's what they have to do. They need to test at the nuclear power plants, but there's no doubt about the national electric grid and the large power transformers. That's not disputed. The quote is, by all means of scientific measurement, it's a direct quote from the Meditech Corporation, that there's no doubt that the grid will be knocked out by the E3 component of of the EMP, and it will destroy the large power transformers. So we we really have a problem there. It's it's indisputable. Well, let's hope that your book, this interview, the information can help with the drive to push the necessary people into action so that they understand that by spending some money now, we can perhaps save the grid and save a lot of misery, if not total destruction in the future, even without a nuclear bomb going off on the planet with its fireball and all the rest. Right. Well, there, there's such thing as an asymmetric response. You know, you don't have to have a nuclear war to destroy the U.S. You just need to detonate one nuclear bomb high enough that it'll destroy the grid and 
a lot of the critical national infrastructure. Stephen Starr, your work on this is extraordinary. It's terrifying, but so important to our future. And I want to thank you for the time that you have given us and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Professor Stephen Starr. His upcoming book, High Altitude Electromagnetic Pulse, A Mortal Threat to the U.S. National Power Grid and U.S. Nuclear Power Plants, is scheduled to be published this summer. To find out more, go to his website, nuclearfamine.org, where you will find a summary of the book and, once it has been published this summer, information on how to obtain your copy. And, of course, we will have that link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 626. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Given today's featured interview, it seems appropriate that we let you know about an upcoming event by Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. It is sometimes known by its website title, spaceforpeace.org, and that's the number four, spaceforpeace.org. And its coordinator is Bruce Gagnon. On Saturday, July 15th, from 9 to 11 a.m. New York time, that's Eastern Standard Time, they will hold their 31st annual meeting and cover latest developments on war via space. The event will feature 10-minute presentations from expert speakers, as well as reports and discussions from around the world. Participants will be Bruce Gagnon, serving as moderator, Tamara Lawrence, a Ph.D. candidate in global governments at the Basile School for International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada. She's a member of the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace, and her topic will be how NATO, national intelligence services, and universities coordinate and weaponize information. Ray McGovern was an Army Infantry Intelligence Officer and served as a CIA analyst for 27 years. His duties included chairing national intelligence estimates and preparing for the President's daily brief. His subject will be U.S. missile bases in Poland and Romania, Cuban Missile Crisis in Reverse. Julian Ri is a member of the New York-based Nodutal for Korean Community Development since 2000. She is a board member at Korea Policy Institute and a steering committee member of the Tongil Peace Foundation. Her subject, U.S.-NATO expansion into the Asia-Pacific. Lisa Savage is a retired educator, organizer, and past candidate for the U.S. Senate in 2020. Her subject, Declining Empire Chases Fading Dream of Full-Spectrum Dominance. Christian Sorensen is a New England-based researcher and independent journalist in the U.S., mainly focused on the corporations profiting from war. He is an Air Force veteran and the author of the book Understanding the War Industry. His subject, How Corporations Form the Backbone of Space Militarization. And Professor M. Dave Webb, is the convener of the Global Network Board of Directors. He is a retired university engineering professor who switched to peace and conflict studies and was chair of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the UK. His subject will be 
the drive to militarize and weaponize space. Advanced registration is required to participate in this event, which you can do by following the Zoom registration link on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 626. Or you can go to spaceforpeace.org, number 4, and find the link there. Either way, it sounds like an important series of brief presentations to help us understand exactly what the dangers are of nukes in space. And it is with sadness that we mark the passing of a genuine hero. Daniel Ellsberg, military analyst and activist who is best known as the author, the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers, died on June 16 at the age of 92. He never stopped fighting against war and specifically nuclear war. And in his most recent book, The Doomsday Machine, he talked about the discrepancy between what Americans are told is the purpose of our nuclear arsenal, preventing aggression, and its actual purpose, quote, to limit the damage to the United States from Soviet or Russian retaliation to U.S. first strike against the USSR or Russia. We have two links up on our website. One is to an article from the Bulletin, Org, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, entitled, Daniel Ellsberg's Message to Us and to Future Generations. It's well worth the read. And there's also a link to A Planetarian Hero Passes, Daniel Ellsberg Remembered, by Mary Beth Brangan and James Heddle of E.ON, the Ecological Options Network. They've compiled a series of clips from interviews that they have done with him through the years, and we will link to that on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 626. And in honor of Daniel Ellsberg and his work, it seems that now is an excellent time for us to revisit information on how any of us can easily help support the United Nations Law Against Nuclear Weapons. Don't Bank on the Bomb is a system for divesting funds from those companies that are actively involved in the design and manufacture of nuclear weapons. This brief explanation of how the campaign works is ably voiced by Susie Snyder. She currently works as the financial sector coordinator for ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, and coordinated the Don't Bank on the Bomb research and campaign starting in 2013. Here is Susie's short explanation of Don't Bank on the Bomb and how any of you can immediately help get rid of the bomb. This brief explanation was recorded at Dr. Helen Caldicott's Symposium on Possible Nuclear Extinction on February 28, 2015. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments, go public. Because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think. 
and that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a, a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons modernization and maintenance. And it's on our website, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. I loved it when I first heard about it. And I love it still. Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb. We have a longer interview with Susie about the program and its implications and the progress it has been making. It's up on Nuclear Hot Seat number 454 from March 3rd, 2020. Check it out on our website. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. You can sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, and every week, as soon as the show posts, you will get a single email with the link and a short description of the show's content. Now, you're on the ground where you are, and you see what you see, and you know what you know. So, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send that to me in an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat's webpage and donate, we really need your help. Anything will be of assistance, and we appreciate any and all of your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided, you cite the program and the website. And if you cite any of the guests or myself, please use the name. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, what happens on Earth stays on Earth. There is no way off or out, despite the delusions of billionaires. So let's take care of what we've already got. And a happy solstice to you all. There you have it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.